Hey, we're going to continue in our walk through the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And, um, you know, Paul spent some time there in his first or second missionary journey. Um, Jeanette, Daniel, and I here were privileged to be there a few years ago and spent some time in Greece. And just kind of, we followed in the footsteps of Paul all throughout the country of Greece and over into Turkey. And uh, it was really uh, amazing to actually be in the very city where Paul was imprisoned. He and Silas were imprisoned uh, for preaching of the gospel. And you know the story of Lydia uh, down by the stream. We got to be right there at that place, traditionally understood as the baptismal place there. And Later on, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he was there in a year about 49 AD. And so about 12 years later, he's writing from prison, it's thought, a prison in Rome. And there's some, a few scholars that would debate that, say, no, it was while he was imprisoned in Ephesus. Yeah, the fact is he was in prison, okay? And, and there are some reasons for consideration of both, but probably the majority believe is Rome. And Paul is writing this letter, and it's such a letter of endearment because these uh, Christians in uh, Philippi were living in, in, in genuine grace and love of, the, of God in their lives. Understand that this was a culture that it was home of Alexander the Great, 300 years earlier, plus. And so they were known for the city, we're the people who conquer. And uh, so this was the cultural mindset. And then Paul comes in and it says, actually, guys, the way we win is through humility and taking on the attitude in the spirit of Christ. What a radical shift. So these people, all they had known for hundreds of years, the way you win, power and control, that's how you win. And Paul is coming and preaching a message of winning by humility and repentance. Wow, what a radical message. How many of you know it's still a radical message today? It doesn't fit culturally, does it? Yeah, culturally. To be strong means powerful and men control. And so when we talk about humility, we talk about laying down our rights and our lives for the sake of Christ as Christ did, it just is, it's difficult at times because we live in a world, a society that is about survival of the fittest and who's going to be the greatest. And I'm certainly got to stay in control of my life. And now we're talking about the way of Christ looks so different. So Paul in his letter is writing to them so endearingly. There's such a bond of relationship. He kept talking about joy. You bring joy to my heart. I pray with you with joy. And if we remember that in chapter 1 and then the parts of chapter 2. We did the first uh, four verses of chapter 2 last week and then all the remaining verses of 12 on to the end of the chapter. And Paul is commending them and reminding them, let's have the same spirit of Christ. Because it's so important, it's what it means to be really people who are walking the gospel. So today, guys, let's pick up on Philippians 2. I'm reading NASB, the 2020 version. NASB is considered one of the most accurate word-for-word -word, uh, versions of the Bible. There's about three, and NASB is right in there, okay? Some versions of the Bible speak a more along a general uh, a thought. And so you, 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 uh, and then that can be really beautiful and easy to read, but in that sometimes you can miss some very precious terminology that it has great significance. So that's what we're using here on the screen is an NASB, <clears throat> um, the 2020 version. So let's go to chapter 2, verse 5, and we're just going to go from 5 through 11. And that'll wrap up the chapter two. So now Paul, having just 
remind them, let's look out for the interests of others and not just to the interests of ourselves. And he says, have this attitude. Now, I grew up with King James Version, and it would say, have this mind. And it really speaks more about the, um, the spirit of the mind. It has really more to do with the attitude. And that's why uh, some, most of the versions have, have shifted to attitude, because it more accurately if reflects the term used there in the Greek language. And uh, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so then he goes on and he says, who as he already existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that at every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says, have this attitude. He's reminding them that our thinking must be Christ-like. And one of the things that we understand with a Christ-like understanding or attitude is that salvation is God's idea, his initiation, and his enablement. And that the faith even to believe is a gift from God, according to the scriptures. The desire to know him, we've, we've already studied this, the desire to know him and the will and choice we make is all initiated by God. He created us. All people exist within him, according to the scriptures. Everything created exists within who he is. Because God is sovereign and he is everything. Nothing ever has been created outside of him wouldn't exist, it couldn't exist outside of God. Everything is within God, the whole universe. And so the desire and the will to choose Christ, which we have, is initiated and activated by Holy Spirit. Some of you remember those times and that, that point in your life when you had this sense, I think I need to yield my life to God. And you just had this kind of this sense. And I mean, some people tell me like, they kind of live with this little nudge for days, weeks, months, or maybe even years, that kind of that inner sense of something I need to, yeah, I, I know, yes. I, uh, and, and some people say, well, you know, I, I just kept putting it off. Yeah, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. I don't really, I don't even know how what I believe, you know. And, um, you know, but, but they kept feeling that nudge. For some individuals, like the Apostle Paul, it's a dramatic encounter with God. Like we read about in Acts chapter 9. And some of us in this room have had some, like, pretty impacting, powerful moments where God shows up in, in a powerful way. And for others of us, it's been maybe just more little subtle nudges all along the way. Either way, it's all him. He, he initiates. But he's always looking for a response of our heart. He's looking for that yes. He anticipates that yes within our hearts. And so our participation in the relationship is absolutely essential. I mean, it's, it's a key to experiencing the salvation of the Lord. Now, we know that salvation has already been provided for all of humanity. Everything it's, Jesus is going to do, he's already done. And the only thing really he's doing now is by his spirit, he's prompting us and awakening us into the reality of what already is. And that is, salvation has already been provided for through his work of the cross and the resurrection, see? And so, we have Christ here is the 
subject of our focus and, and our focus today, Christ Jesus is the creator. He is the highest authority of our lives. He is the judge of all humanity. The scriptures remind us again and again. And just as a reminder, your Bible did not create the universe. It, it gives us a good clue as to who did. Your Bible is not the highest authority, guys. You don't stand before a Bible on Judgment Day. Jesus Christ, the Creator, is the judge of the living and the dead, and He is the highest authority. Don't you love the Scriptures? Oh, because they reveal Christ and point us to Christ and contain within them words of life as spoken by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The highest authority is Christ. We always got to remember that as much as we love Scripture. In the Scriptures, if you look in the Old uh, Testament language, and of course the Old Testament was translated was translated into Greek. It's known as the Septuagint, okay? And uh, the term that's used for word, R-O-D, is dabar. And dabar is a is more of a word event or like a prophetic happening. And so the Old Testament um, speaks of the word of God, of the word of the Lord, not referring to the, the book, the, the Bible, that sometimes we refer to as the word of God. But the Old Testament speaks to the word of God as a coming. It's a taking place. Uh, it's an event. It's a moment in time where the heart and the will of God is made manifest with humankind. It's those aha moments. And you read about them all the way through Scripture. And so the Sprout prophets would speak of the coming of the Lord and they would speak the word of the Lord and then the, at the appointed time or at the time when humans would respond to that, there was this happening, this event that we read about that is historical, but it's more than historical, it's eternal because it was come from the heart of God, it was spoken, but it was manifest at a particular point in time. So think about this, guys. When God's word and deeds meet with man, you have the revealing of truth. Let's put that on the screen, okay? When God's word and deeds meet with man, you have the revealing of truth. John chapter 1. Let's read about it. Let's give an example. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, now the Logos is referred to as a he, so we have a personal pronoun used. He was in the beginning, uh, or yeah, in the beginning with God, and this speaks of Christ, the eternal Christ who always was. Verse 14, and the word, Christ, who always was, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. We just came through the Christmas season, and we're celebrating the birth of Christ, or another term is when he became, took on human flesh, we refer to that as the incarnation He came and he infused himself with all of humanity. He didn't just show up as another little humanoid walking around on the planet. Oh, yay, we have one more. No, 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 no. When he came, there was something really supernatural about this. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So here he comes now, fully God, but taking on human flesh. So the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word of God. Now, so when John the beloved is writing this gospel, 
He's thinking of the Old Testament tabernacle. Some of you will really uh, get this because you, you've studied. Um, you, you understand the Old Testament tabernacle and the significance of it. But John is thinking of the Old Testament tabernacle where God met with humankind and he revealed himself in great glory. Jesus Christ became a man and the tabernacle or the meeting place of God. Isn't that marvelous? So we celebrate the birth of Christ. What we're celebrating is an event that would forever change and transform all of humanity for eternity. It was the meeting of God. It was time and place where God revealed himself in and through Jesus Christ. I thought everybody would jump up and shout or something. I mean, come on, it's more exciting than the Super Bowl. <laughs> You're thinking like I am. I'm just I'm like marveling. So Jesus in human flesh was what? God in the appointed time, in the fullness of time, as the scripture tells us. In other words, it was the appointed time of the Lord. Jesus came to reveal God himself. You want to know what God is like? We look at the life of Jesus. You want to know the heart of God? We listen carefully. We read carefully the scriptures and all the teachings of Christ, of which we don't like totally all understand. But with the best we can, we go, ah, ah, that's how God thinks. And John says that the word is God, the creator by whom all things were made. Now, now that the word, without ceasing to be what it was eternally, became a creature. Now, this is kind of cool because the creator becomes a creature himself without ceasing to be the creator. So, Jesus Christ enters. I was thinking about this. I don't know. I hope this makes sense. But Jesus enters into the creaturely existence, if you will, that he created, and now he becomes one with his creatures. Rather mind-boggling if you try to think of all the implications of that. And yet, that shows the heart of God and his desire union with humanity. Sadly, much of humankind see God as afar. He's out there. If I could just get to God. And Paul said, he's not far from you. Acts 17, he told the Athenians, as a matter of fact, you don't have to look because Already, all of us already exist in him. And we move, we have our being already in God. In Christ Jesus as creator. All things are already in him, Paul teaches us. But sometimes we still see like, hey God, can you hear me? He's like, I'm right here all the time. I'm right here with you. I haven't left you. So in all of his sovereign freedom, get this, in his sovereign freedom as creator, he becomes a creature without ceasing to be the creator word. He becomes human flesh without diminishing his eternal nature as God. it's important that we catch the relational significance of all of this. If we just see the incarnation as a good deed done, we're missing. We're missing the beauty and the power and the majesty of what it means for Christ becoming humankind. He said, Galen, what are you talking about this? Because this is what Paul is zeroing in on right now. Paul has some amazing insight, an amazing insight into real true Christology, understanding of Christ as it relates to, to Father God and all of humanity. 
And it, it keeps popping up in Paul's writing. It pops up in Romans. And here we have in Philippians. It's in Colossians. It's in Ephesians. Paul can't help himself. But then again, Paul was caught up in the third heaven. So, you know, he might know a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is this Paul character? Now, he's not God by any means, but he certainly has some insight and points of revelation that we have to stop and take note of and see if we can get our hearts connected to. You know, the Bible tells us we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge, the understanding and the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I'm trying to take a little time with this. And just maybe we can, maybe some of this, what I share, can be a stimulus for for us just to, to, to grasp just a greater um, manifested reality into our own hearts. So Philippians 2 and verse 6, let's go back to that. Who as he already existed in the form of God, okay, now if you see already italicized, that's because it's not in the original Greek. And so sometimes in our, actually, the Bibles that are really put together appropriately should always have italicized that which is not in the original. And so this is not distorting, could, but this is not a distortion of, of the original language. It just makes more sense, okay? Who, as he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't grappling with who's the greater one here. Okay, I guess I'm number two, so I guess I got to be the one to go to earth. Ah, really, I mean, I don't, I mean, who wants to go take on humankind? That's, I see some bummer stuff going on down there. It's just like, well, why would I want to become human, you know? You understand, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in perfect union and harmony. Always have, always will be. Although there are distinct roles that each of them play. But they move together seamlessly. If you see a hierarchy, a hierarchy like Father, okay, number two ranking is Son. Number three, well, Holy Spirit somewhere down here. If you see it that way, you're missing the beauty of it. It's really unequal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three in this union of oneness, okay? And he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. So Paul is trying to say there's perfect harmony eternally between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what does it mean that he emptied himself? Now, there have been, in the early church, there was one or two individuals that are referred to and even in recent years there have been a few who said he emptied himself of his deity temporarily when he came to earth but this has never ever been accepted in orthodox christianity orthodox meaning traditional christianity all the way back it's never been accepted he did not like okay I'm God, but I got to go take on the form of a human, so I'm going to set my godness aside when I take on human flesh. None of the early church fathers, the consistent thing is no, he was always God. Then there are some kind of a modified um, understanding, and there are some, not many, but there are some. If you look at all of, all of uh, uh, Christianity, it would only be a few. We're talking maybe, maybe 100,000 or so, but we're not talking about millions who believe that, well, he emptied himself of divine attributes. He was God, but he emptied himself of divine attributes so he could act like a human and so that he could show us how to live just as he lived. And so since he was just basically human, he set aside some of his divine attributes. He was God, but he just like set aside his prerogative to act as God so he could show how a human could live above sin and how a human could live in power of the Holy Spirit doing signs, wonders, and miracles. One influential pastor kind of puts it this way. He says, he performed miracles in right relationship with God 
But not because he was God, he was only acting as a man submitted to the Father so that he could show us what we could do if we are totally submitted to God. And I would say, yeah, there's elements of that that are like, yes, um, but it's not consistent with what all of the early church fathers and what has been the norm of Christianity and understanding along this line. So I'm, I want to be careful. I really want to be careful with that. Anytime we suggest that God now is going to set a part of himself aside, you know, we want to really just be careful with that, okay? Some things aren't worth scrapping over, but I do think we want to, we want to be really cautious when we start talking along that line um, because um, you head down that path and you can wind up in a, a false doctrine that's considered heresy. It's called kenosis, and it's labeled that because that's what the word emptied means, is kenosis. So <clears throat> that would be a concern. That's been a concern for 2,000 years again and again it's come up i'm thinking along this line that the self-emptying is not to be seen in any measure as a divestment of his deity to any degree but on the contrary get this taking on human flesh is an expression of his deity not setting aside of any degree of his godlikeness or his godness since he is god but it's an expression of his deity now that does may not make all sense to it but remember he's god and he could express himself he can remain 100% god retain all of his godlike attributes yet take on human flesh and have human nature and somehow that all work together i don't think any, and as a matter of fact, any theologian, there's no theologian I've ever read yet that says, I've got it all exactly figured out. And there's some always surmising, and they go, yeah, well, there's some of it. It's just kind of like somewhat of a mystery. And that makes some of us uncomfortable because we're like people of certainty. I just want to know. Uncertainty is good because it requires faith to still trust him even though I don't totally understand. How many of you know that's beautiful? How many of you ever sharing the gospel with someone and they said, but this doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense. Well, when I get it all figured out, I'll yield my life to Jesus Christ. And you're going, well, that's really kind of stupid, you know what I mean? Because this is a faith walk, you know? See? And that's true for all of us. We'll never have it all figured out. We can't always come to all understanding. What we want to learn to do is respond. Respond to the measure of, 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 of himself that, that, that which he, he expresses. So the act of the incarnation, now I think I've got this for you on the screen here. I think I put it out there. The act of incarnation, becoming human, is an elegant expression of what God can do that is otherwise to us incomprehensible. Somehow I want to be okay with that. Christ in the being and existence of God, who also took upon the being and the existence of a creator. He simply emptied himself in the sense of his pre-existent form because think of this he had simply a he was a a spirit being spiritual body that took on human form and then when christ left this earth after the resurrection right what did he get in the resurrection a body that was in human form, but it's a spiritual body, no longer subjected to mortality. And yippee, we are going to get one of those. And it's going to be this perfect picture when we were in our prime. Oh, and we still get to eat at Super Bowls. Absolutely, because Jesus ate after his resurrection. He's not ha having fish barbecue, man. Having a fish fry by the, uh, by the lake. The human form was not the outward flesh only. The human form was not the outward flesh only because Christ assumed human existence with human nature. Jesus had two complete Natures, one human, one fully divine. How it all happened, I, 
yeah, I mean, some of that is just a little bit hard, you know, to try to understand. But he's true God, true man, united in one person. Let me just throw this out. This is known as a hypostatic union by miracle of the Holy Spirit. Hypostatic simply means personal. And a hypostatic union is the personal union of Christ's two natures. It's the joining together of the divine and the human. But this is the miracle of the birth of Christ. Sometimes at Christmas go, oh, cute. That must have been amazing. This cute little baby. Oh, so sad to be born in a barn, you know, in a manger, a little cradle, a feeding trough, you know. But cute. And I'm sure it's cute in a very human sense. But on the other hand, we're like, oh, my goodness. This is amazing. He has the appearance of man, but this is God. And so Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's read on. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. I think that's pretty straightforward there, right? I don't, I just don't feel like we need to spend much time on that. He went to the cross. By the way, he did not go to the cross as a victim of angry humans, he went to the cross by his own choice. He chose to lay, scriptures make it very clear, he chose to lay down his life because that's what love does. So he was not a victim, but rather it was his choice. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under heaven, and that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So here's what we know about God exalting him. Uh, Forty days, okay, uh, it happened after the resurrection, his ascension, that is. And so he returns to heaven as both the Son of Man and the Son of God in his deity, which always existed. And today, that's how he remains. He remains in human form. He's with a glorified body, but a recognizable glorified body. Isn't that beautiful? And Ephesians chapter 1, I'll just make quick reference. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, we, we have this like, this picture, Paul expounds upon this, what it looks like. Uh, these are in accordance to the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. He's above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. All things he put in subjection under his feet. And Father has made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you go like, oh my goodness, okay, I can't even begin to comprehend all of that. Understand, though, that his exaltation was not a transactional reward based on his good deeds. I heard it said one time, and it really bothered me. I heard a preacher say, now you see what happens? When you obey God, you get raised up. Jesus learned how to simply obey. So he obeyed his father. And God rewarded him by exalting him. Yikes. Bits of truth in that, but that isn't really what we see in Scripture as the real heart of how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work. Yikes, that's this earthly hierarchical command, power, control. You obey, I give you reward. You don't obey, I punish you. Isn't that funny how our thinking sometimes is so otherwise worldly? Even while reading scripture, how we can interpret things from a world's perspective because we're just inundated with, right? And we wrestle with these things ourselves. So Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe, was creator. He's sustainer of all things. And he is the one before all humans will stand. His name 
speaking at his name is above every other name, is that his name is the universal acknowledgement, okay, of his majesty and his eternal nature and power over all that exists, okay? All things have been placed under his feet, okay? All things have always been created within him. All things, all creatures, all humans know as to have relationship with him. That's rather obvious. Look at our world. Why do you think we such, have such a mess in our world? People fighting each other and fighting a division because they're not in relationship. They have it connected by virtue of being created to loved ones, but have not yet discovered and responded to the salvation of the Lord and having our hearts purged and cleansed so we can actually be Christ-like. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You notice how those letters are there in, in uppercase, and you will find that in every scripture. You know why? Because it's referring back to an Old Testament passage. And Paul did this a lot because he was like, call himself like the Pharisee of a Pharisee. He was a well-studied Jew and, and so he knew the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. How beautiful. So what he does is reach back to eternal truths spoken in the Old Testament and make them relevant for the present of his day and this day post-crucifixion and resurrection. And so Paul now, he talks about, he begins to identify who are those knees. Who do those knees belong to? And he says, those that are in heaven, those that are on earth and under the earth. Kind of covers the whole spectrum, doesn't he? Kind of like all the dead and the living. Then Paul goes on to say something that honestly is somewhat perplexing, at least for some of us in our backgrounds. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every knee. What percentage of humanity would be every? I think 100%. Think a little sillier. But then he goes on and says, every knee will bow. What's this bowing thing? Are they bowing at the point of a spear? Bow down. Oh, I'm going to take you out. Are they bowing at the end of an AK-47? Now, now remember who we bowing before here. Now, when you bow before powerful, controlling men, that's yes, that's what happens, and you just do it, or else you're you're, you're going to die right there. Okay. So you do it just so you live. And it happens to people every day. It happens in wars and, and, and prisoners of war and such. It, it, that thing, kind of thing is happening right now. So sadly. But I've never known that to be God. Didn't God give humankind a will, a freedom to choose? Did Adam and Eve... He gave some advice and counsel to which they didn't listen well, but he gave them a choice. It's always the nature of love. Love never forces, manipulates, and controls. Love said, here, if you make the wrong choice, there's consequences. Always are consequences. So every knee bowing indicates some form of humility and submission and then he goes on to say, though, and this is the perplexing part for some of us anyhow, with some of our backgrounds, is that every tongue will confess. Every tongue will gladly praise the Lord. This is not a forced conviction, convic uh, confession. This is something that, because it would defy all of the nature of God that we see revealed through all of Scripture. It's not a forced thing. Let me read to you. Uh, another a version of the scriptures, simply called the New Testament. 
Um, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee of beings, heavenly, earthly, and subterranean should bow, and every tongue gladly confess that Jesus, the anointed, is the Lord, the glory of the Father. Here's one in a real loose translation. It's more like a paraphrase, but I think it catches the heart of it. And then we'll actually, actually look just into the actual terms themselves. There's no paraphrases. Nobody messing with it. Uh, and, and, and one, one mere Bible says, every tongue will voice and resonate with the same devotion to the unquestionable lordship as the redeemer of life. Christ has glorified God as the father of creation. This is the ultimate conclusion of the father's intent. That kind of sounds like, okay, that kind of makes sense because it was God's will. He's never willed that anyone would perish. He's always willed that everyone would come to repentance. Would we doubt God's will that maybe he got it wrong? Or do you think that God lacks the ability to pull off his will? It seems through scripture anyhow that every time God sets his heart and mind on something, he gets what he wants in the end. In the end. There may be some detours and this and zigging and zagging with humans. I think God might have the ability. And then we go to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 13. We sing songs out of this. There's numerous songs, beautiful songs that we've sung over the years right out of this text. Now, this is John. He's caught up and he's seeing the heavenly scene. And this is this prophetic happening. I heard every cre created thing, every created thing, which is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth or on the sea and all things in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing, the honor, the glory and dominion forever and ever. I love some of the songs that we've sung over the years of those of this passage. But the part that can make our head scratch, he's hearing every created thing. So now here we have Paul over here repeatedly in three different letters to three different churches. He's telling them that every knee is going to bow and tongue confess and they're going to do it gladly. And then we have John, the beloved, is saying, hey, guys, I'm up here, and here, here's what I'm seeing right now. And you're going like, what? What's with these guys? They should know better than that. That's not possible. Well, that's what we've said. That's, that's what I've heard, and that's what I've said to many, many people. That's not possible. It's forced confession. Of course, that's what it is. People are forced to. Back to Philippians chapter 2. So what do we do? What do you do with, with scriptures like this that collide with preconceived notions of our understanding? I can tell you what I did for many, many years. Kind of ignore it, explain it away. Well, it was forced. It's forced confession. You know, after all, you know, when you stand before God, what are you going to do? You just might as well give in. And a few people who really thought, and thought, well, a lot smarter than me go, Galen, that doesn't sound right. You're kind of making something up here. Well, you know, I mean, that's kind of standard thought. Yeah, standard thought of a narrow little slice of Christians. It's not traditional thought. That's, it, it's, it's really... It's, it's, it's kind of a new liberal thinking that we've conjured up because we couldn't quite explain some things and we're having a struggle with it and so we try to come up with some of the explanation. Just like some of us do in Christian circles that trying to explain away the gifts of the Spirit. Well, because I don't understand them well, they're not for today. Healing's not for today because I've never seen anybody healed yet so it's not for today. Oh, come on. Amazing thing is healings happen every day. How many of you think we need more healings, right? We really do. We really do. Some of us are struggling, and we have loved ones and friends, and we need to see greater anointing of healings and miracles to reveal Jesus, right? 
I'm all for it. Why not this year? So here's some possible responses when we see something so simply laid out. Here's what I, 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 I used to do. Uh, this is Maybe you're not like this, um, but I would say, well, that, that can't be. I mean, the, the text can't mean that because it doesn't fit with what I've always been taught and believed and preached. And you just kind of skip by it. Another response is, is like, boy, text sure looks like it probably means what it says. And then there's a host of supporting scriptures all around it. That means maybe I've been mistaken in my understanding. Maybe I need to humble myself. And the thought of being mistaken, well, that can be, honestly, it can be a scary thing. Because then you go, okay, if I need some adjustment in this passage, what other things might I need to rethink? Some of us do that better than others of us. It's hard. I remember a time, <clears throat> um, Dr. David Schock. It was Dwayne, are you here? Dwayne, Dwayne Cole, over here. He was Dwayne Cole's, uh, his family pastor when Dwayne was a kid, down in Long Beach, California. And we had Dr. Schock here about 20, uh, 30 years ago this year. I think it was 30 years ago this year. The only time we had him here, he's long gone with Jesus. He's a prophet, powerful prophet and pastor. And so we're sitting at my dining room table, and I had my eschatology all figured out. I kind of followed after all these other dudes that have their charts, and they figured out, and the Antichrist is coming, and this, and all this stuff. And I pieced it all together. I learned it. I learned it from some of the finest out there. And I had it down. And so I was asking him some questions because I needed to clarify my position. Not knowing where he was at coming from, Right? So I had made a few statements, and, and, and then uh, he was sat at the opposite of our dining room table. It was after a morning breakfast, and we were just chatting, and we didn't have a service till that night. And, and so we're chatting, and so I said, Dr. Shock, and I, I shared a few things. I said, what do you think about that? And he just smiled, and he says, well, that's kind of an interesting line of thought, but I, I'm not sure how you came up with it out of Scripture. Well, I mean, I got a verse over here, and then you power to Thessalonians, and then you go to Daniel, and then you go to Revelation. You say, yeah, but, but where do you just see that laid out? Well, um, I am now confronted with the possibility that just maybe it's not as clear cut as I had thought. Inside, the feelings were a bit of fear, anxiousness, disappointment that I had formed these things for years. And here I am. I'm 40 years old, and now he's telling me that, are you sure, Galen? You know, there's other lines of thinking. Oh, well, what's, what are those? And I began just feed and ask questions all for hours that day. And then the next day, we drove him down to the coast. Had a meeting that night. Next day, we drove him down to the coast, just to see our coastline and such, and had lunch down there. And the whole way, I'm just asking questions. And he's just, he's just giving me food for thought. All I'm trying to say is, is that this has happened too many times in my life where I realize, oh, my goodness, things aren't as ironclad as I had understood. And I'm needing to kind of reconsider this passage was one of those for me. Quite honestly, one of those for me. Kind of didn't make sense. Some of the things I've thought about in, over the years, though, that were perplexing to me, we really sing all these beautiful songs about his mercy endures forever. And then we say there's an expiration date, though, however. Well, why am I singing his love endures forever, his mercy endures forever? Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures about the mercy of God, unending. And yet I'm saying to other people, now you know there's an expiration date. He's going to only tolerate this stuff so far, and that's done, man. You better, you better know this. His mercy will, there's a cutoff date. Expiration, if you go past that expiration date, you are going to suffer major consequences. 
Then I read scriptures like the lost sheep. Who's searching for who? Jesus is searching for the lost sheep in the parable, but he searches until he finds it. What do you do with that? No, he gives up after a while and leaves his lost there. I don't know. I gotta. I gotta consider the scriptures. I can't just go with some preconceived understanding I had based on some scripture for sure that I have to deal with. I'm just telling you, it, 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 it's a challenge. And I keep going back to it, the lost coin, until they find it. Until they find it. That's the heart of our God. That's mercy. That's love. I'm like, okay, that sounds right. That sounds consistent. But in my head, I'm arguing with myself. Guys, I've got to share this with you. Oh, my goodness. We're, we're just going way past here today. Oh, my goodness. Can, can I give you just a couple more? If, if you have to go, I, I'm sorry. We're just way past. I know we spent a lot of time in the front, but I'm sorry. I I really try to honor you guys' time and not go on. Okay, let's let, put this on the screen right here. Every knee shall bow. Then it says verse 10. Is that on there now? There it is, okay? This comes from the evangelical conservative Bible commentary. This is not a progressive liberal commentary. This is the most conservative line. And guess what they say? We've got to deal with this. You can't just blow it off. Yeah, yeah, every knee will bow and we just cruise on. Because we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, creator and judge of all. It's an allusion to Isaiah 45 in which God requires the ends of the earth to fully submit to him. I'm just reading verbatim, copied right out of it on my digital library. I'm happy to give any of you my notes. If so, this passage teaches that Christ's full authority and position as God will ultimately be recognized by universal worship and verbal acknowledgement. Such an admission by all creation in heaven and on earth and under the earth will resound to the glory of the Father. Isaiah 45. Let's go actually right to the scripture. That Paul quotes, Isaiah 45, there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I remember when God in the beginning said, let there be light. What happened? Light eluded him. (laughs) God is God. And when he makes a declaration, Watch out. And then he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Remember, I'm God. There is no other. I've sworn. The word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. God's word will be fulfilled. And I know we all believe that, generally speaking. Until it crosses over with something that we have understood differently, then it's like, well, you know, at least that's what I have personally wrestled with. Okay, let's look at this and wrap this thing up. I will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. What? This is the prophet Isaiah. This is where Paul's getting it from. So Paul didn't just like pull it out of his head one day because he was laying under the shade tree and tried to come up with something nice to say. Back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. Back to that. Now I want us to go to the next slide. Let's go to Thayer's. And we're out of here. Thayer's definition. Now here's what you got to understand. For those of you Bible college graduates, as we have numerous sitting here, Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament has been used by most every pastor since 1985. And uh, <clears throat> here's Thayer's. We have Thayer's up there? Right there it is. Exilomogio. That's the Greek word. Exilomogio. To confess, to profess, acknowledge openly, joyfully, 
to honor, to celebrate, give praise, to profess that one will do something to promise or agree. And then I have another slide here, and this comes from uh, a commentary on the scriptures of Philippians. Uh, these other evangelicals, uh, these aren't liberal, progressive, <laughs> just totally the opposite. And they say, exclamation, look at Matthew 3. It's translated as thank. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 in Luke. It means growing out of a sense of open, joyful acknowledgement. It's a frank, open confession. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. They were being baptized by him in the river in Jordan as they confess, exclamation, their sins. I don't know about you, but every time the Holy Spirit has prompted me and brought me to that place I need to confess sins, I'll do it gladly. Here, God, yes, God, forgive me. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit that compels me to do that. Matthew chapter 11, at that time, Jesus said, I exclamogio, I praise you, Father. Same term, same exact Greek term as all of our scholars tell us. Romans chapter 10, Paul does it again. Paul, you're making it hard for us. Actually, it should be easy, but anyhow, it's challenging for us. So Paul is talking about, what are you guys judging each other for? Hey, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, Paul goes right back to Isaiah. As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise, exclamation, will give praise or confession to God, and everyone will give an account to his life. What does Romans 10 tell us? Romans 10. We know these scriptures, man. I've preached these scriptures so much, particularly my early days with more kind of evangelism, uh, with passion in my heart. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How do we come to sal experience salvation? Believe in the heart. Confess with our mouth. And this is what Paul is saying. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess joyfully before the Lord. You are Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. No one speaking by the Spirit says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't even say it. I've sat with so many people absolutely would refuse to declare Jesus as Lord because there's something within every human knows. If I declare Jesus as Lord, I am submitting to his authority. Rightfully so, right? Wow. Philippians, so loaded. Philippians gives us so many things we have to grapple with, like humbling ourselves, having the interests of others in mind versus ourselves and Paul goes on to this but he's commending these people and he's reminding them of these of these glorious grace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord I don't understand it all but somehow then he proposes to them and maybe he'd already told them before and he's just reminding them of the lordship of Jesus Christ that everybody's going to stand before him and then Paul goes on to say though that every bow, knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. I can just tell you that's very contrary to what I always understood for many, many years and what I preached for many years. But I can't just keep ignoring it, so I have to. And for years now, I've been kind of like, okay, I got to grapple with this. I don't know that I still totally understand it, but I got to, I got to look at the scriptures honestly. If something needs to change in me, then so be it. So be it. How many of you know that's called growth? We can't grow without changing, right? Let's stand together. Well, these are things we got to consider. So I just throw those out as we go through uh, our study. That's simply that. I'm certainly not in any authority on any of, of these matters, and uh, none of us would consider ourselves that. But as we read together and go through the, the scriptures, and we've chosen Philippians, we have to come along the way and consider what does this mean to us? And and this happened to be our central point today concerning the person of Jesus Christ. So, God, thank you that you, you love all of us because we're all on this journey of discovery. And you love us right where we're at. And you don't cast any one of us aside because we don't totally understand you. 
We never will on this side of heaven. We'll never all totally understand you till we see you face to face and we go, oh my goodness. <laughs> You're different than I thought. <laughs> well, Lord, thank you that you're gracious to us and that your grace is sufficient to allow us to be gracious with one another as we're all in this process and on this journey together. Unto you be all honor and glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. Oh my goodness, the clock ran away from me. I'm so sorry, guys.